in my view, what we have been trying to do required a type of learning agility and bringing together kind of different and disparate ideas from a variety of different situations and bringing them together to create something that works for Fragomen. I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure and manage important benefit programs, make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company, and so much more that quite frankly often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. My guest on this episode is Leslie Rohrbacker. She's the Chief Human Resource Officer at Fragomans, a large immigration law office. She has a certain knack for finding talent and knows that sometimes it's okay to take a chance on someone if you have a good feeling about the candidate. Let's dive right in. Leslie, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks. It's great to be here. Is. I'm glad we made it happen. We made we took technology to another level. We outsmarted it today. We did. I didn't think I was capable of it, but here I am. I appreciate you uh, you coming on the show. The idea here is to have some fun, to showcase some of the things that you have done, uh, allow me to pick your brain so I can learn and also share what I'm learning with all the other people that are listening to this show and just have some fun. You ready? I'm ready. If you don't mind, before we get started, just give a, a quick synopsis of, of who you are and uh, what you're doing these days. Well, I am Leslie Rohrbacker, and I am the CHRO of Fragomen, which is the world's largest immigration services provider. We have 54 offices in, I think, almost 20 countries, and we are the market leader in immigration services. We are a law firm in the U.S. and in other places, but in some countries we are a consultancy. So I'd like to say we fit squarely in the professional services niche. How'd you get there? <laughs> it was an interesting journey, right? So I am a lawyer by training. So I practiced for 10 years in private law firms. And then I had a stint with a small specialty pharmaceutical company in New Jersey, where I was in the general counsel's office. And uh, then I became the CHRO, which, which we can talk about, but I did that transition from legal to HR. And then after that, I took some time doing my own consulting work in the talent space and came upon an opportunity at Fragman. They were looking for an interim CHRO. They were going through a transition at the time. So they weren't interested in a permanent hire. They wanted somebody to come in and essentially act as a CHRO while they figured out who and what they were looking for. 
And about three months into that consulting stint, they asked me to stay on in a permanent capacity. And that was seven years ago. Oh my God. Here you are today. (laughs) And here I am (laughs) in my home office. (laughs) Oh yeah. In this new world. So uh, what I'd love to do is just to give the audience a better understanding of, you know, get them more familiar with you as a person. I'd love to kind of ask you some uh, personal rapid fire questions. And then from there, let's uh, get under the hood of your career and some of the things that you've done. What do you say? Let's do it. All right. Introvert, extrovert, or do you kind of, kind of toggle in between that centrovert ambivert space? Oh, I am all ambivert. I can swing wildly. I can be the life of the party <laughs> or I can be a hermit who hid my phone in the other room. Wow. I'm envious of that. I've been having a lot of fun. That's been a standard question I've been asking and, and it's been really interesting <laughs> to see where people, and, and it really just goes to show that you can be either an introvert, an extrovert, or like you said, the, an ambivert and be successful in whatever role that you might be. So, so thank you for that. Sure. I know you like to read. What was the last book that you read? Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. I just finished it, ironically, a few days ago. Actually, last week I finished it, kind of as all of the unrest was starting to happen in the U.S. So it was a timely read. It's a Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, So I, I knew it would be good. It was a tough read, but an important one. I'm Glad I read it, and I'm glad I read it at the time I did because it's, I've been thinking about it a lot. You know, it's so interesting. So I, I just spoke to my neighbor, bumped into my neighbor on a walk yesterday or the day before, and she just finished the exact same book. Really? Yeah. It, how long has that been out for? Um, that's a good question. It's been out for several years because he that's has since won another Pulitzer for another book that focuses on the situation of being black in America. And I'm forgetting the title of that book now, but he won another Pulitzer for that book. So Underground Railroad has been around for a bit. Although I read that it took him 16 years to write it. Well, at least it paid off. You know, how often. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. It was, I almost put it aside because there were some passages that were very difficult to get through, but I'm glad I didn't. Oh. Anything that you've taken away, I mean, God, I know you've taken a lot of things away from that book, but that, you know, are helping you to either understand what's going on these days mm-hmm. or that you could just share that might help other people. I think that there's just such a strong historical context for what we're experiencing. And, you know, I know it's it's a hot button issue for some people because, you know, there's a view that slavery is in our past and we've moved beyond it. But I think the way the book was written and the way it was framed, I think you can see that some of the struggles that we're having today really do harken back to that time. As terrible as it is to come to that conclusion, I think that's sort of where where I landed. Yeah, I think the universe is telling me that I should read this between uh, two people yes. in one week and then what's yes. going on. You know? I would loan you mine, but I already loaned it to somebody else. Uh, oh, so you read. You're, you're, uh, you're not an audible person. No, 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 no. I read. I am a book lover. I'm a library lover, a bookstore lover. I only, I only read paper books or hardcover books. I used to do that, but like you, I would lend them out. And then I would forget who I lent them to. And the, uh, the bookshelves have gone barren. Oh, no, that's terrible. Well, you need to fill them back up again. I do. I do. Hey, tell me, if you don't mind, share with me a habit that you have, good, bad, or indifferent. 
I'm super organized. OCD so, level or? <laughs> well, I mean, so I was going to say the flip side of that is I can be a little compulsive. <laughs> so at my best, I'm super organized and things are running smoothly and I know where everything is. But of course, the bad side of that is I can be a little bit compulsive about being neat. But on balance, I think it's a good habit. Yeah, I'd say it's a great habit. I like to consider myself fairly organized as well. Tell me something that most people don't know about you. I would love to be a backup singer in a rock band. <laughs> do, do you sing at all? I mean, in the shower, <laughs> uh, you know, in church, in the house when I'm cleaning or being organized. I don't sing in a choir or anything like that, but I've always enjoyed music and uh, I love the idea of being a backup singer. So I grew up with with the Eagles and, and those types of bands. And I just always thought there were great harmonies and would love to be in the background. <laughs> what, what was the last concert that you uh, went to? I went to U2's Joshua Tree tour a couple of years ago. I went, I saw that as well. That was excellent. Yeah, it was excellent. And it was really, it brought me back to my teenage years because U2 was actually one of the first concerts I went to as a teenager. I think it was like 1984 when I remember just being completely blown away. And those were their, I mean, they're activists now and still, but those were their days of activism around the troubles in Northern Ireland. And I just remember being blown away by their presence as like a 15-year-old. And here they are still going strong. Mm -hmm. Still going strong and still speaking out. Yeah. So you're a CHRO, you've got this legal background. How well did that prepare you for what you're doing? Very well. I think a law degree really teaches you analytical rigor, the ability to collect and sort and sift through facts and information, but in order to solve problems and reach decisions. And so I think in a position like CHRO or in any executive level type position, I think that's a tremendous benefit to be able to take in large quantities of facts and information that are coming at you from a variety of, of places and sources and really in a very systematic way, break that information down so that you can make a decision. And I think that rigor is taught in law school from day one. And I think it has served me tremendously well in my roles, both the roles that I've had as CHRO. Wow. Huh. I've never heard it put that way. That's really interesting. Is this something that you try to push down? I mean, I know, uh, well, I don't know if you're the rest of your staff, um, if anyone else is a lawyer, but are you able to try to kind of share this philosophy of thinking with other people that are working for you? I definitely try to model it. And I think if you asked my team how I work and how I engage in analysis, I think that they would recognize what I just described to you as the way I take in information and solve problems. I ask a lot of questions too. And I think that definitely harkens back to my days as a litigator, where the best way to get information is to ask a lot of pointed questions. So I think I certainly model it on the team. And in fact, yes, there are a few members of the team that have law degrees. They didn't practice. They just went right from getting a law degree to working in industry. But I think I would say to anybody who was considering 
either business school degree or, or a law degree, I think they're equally potent in a business context. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I was actually in um, a couple years prior to launching NetworkWise, I was in structured finance. And mm-hmm. I would, built a couple of businesses and the CEO that I was working with, um, he was not necessarily a lawyer, but you know, a strong component of what we did. And I think what made him successful was, you know, again, reading docs, you know, and not mm-hmm. understand how mm-hmm. you know, like, like the legalese and understanding, you know, again, how to think having that law degree really helps you to think differently. It does. Again, it's something that they teach and instill in you from day one. And so I always say that other than marrying my husband, getting a law degree was the best decision I ever made. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's nice he made it up there. Good job. (laughs) Well, it's funny. He only did because when I said, you know, getting a law degree was the best decision I ever made. And he said, well, thanks. I said, well, obviously, in addition to the decision to marry you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've memorialized it here. So uh, so kudos to him. So in your tenure, in your short, I don't know if you want to call it, it might feel like dog years, you never know. But uh, in in your tenure at Fragman, you've seen the company go through some exponential growth, correct? Yes, for sure. Yeah, we've doubled in size. Our revenue has, has gone up in equal measure. So yeah, tremendous growth. So what has been your approach to building your team and building the department during this massive transition? I like recruiting people with varied experiences. So I'm not particularly interested in someone who has, you know, I'm not being pejorative, but I'm personally not interested in someone who's spent their entire career in one industry. Because I think when you do that, you are obviously very steeped in that particular industry, but perhaps you're not um, as flexible as I think you need to be when you're in, in an organization that's simultaneously building and going through a lot of transformation. And so I want and have sought for versatility, agility, and imagination, right? And again, I think Mm -hmm. when you've been in different industries, I think you can be a bit more imaginative than if you spent all of your time in one particular area. But I'm also not a big command and control leader. You know, clear reporting lines are important. But I really strive for a flatter feel in my team because I think that fosters more collaboration and development. And I, I would like to say that I've taken chances on people because I think I have what it takes and I've learned to trust my instincts about talent. So the people on my team, they need to like autonomy and accountability. I don't, I don't leave them to twist. And I don't over delegate, but I set the stage and it's kind of their show from there. So that's my management philosophy. Mm-hmm. But in terms of finding the right team for Fragman, it's been a combination of finding the right capabilities, but also selling them on the opportunity to be in an organization that was really intent upon building best in class progressive HR and going through this significant cultural transformation. So it meant selling people who maybe didn't necessarily see a law firm as the most exciting place to be for HR, selling them about the transformational opportunity that existed and continues to exist at the firm. Um, So it was a combination of finding the capabilities that I just described, that agility, the versatility, the imagination, plus the desire to come in and really be a change agent. 
Mm. So you you try to steer away from, I guess, a, for lack of a better term, like an echo chamber, people that are kind of just stuck in hearing and seeing one thing. You've leaned towards best athlete hiring. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Learning agility, right? To me, and again, I'm not criticizing people who have that deep expertise. And I think that there is a place for that. And I think that there are organizations where that really makes sense. But in my view, what we have been trying to do required a type of learning agility and bringing together kind of different and disparate ideas from a variety of different situations and bringing them together to create something that works for Fragomen. Um, so yes, best available athlete. Um, any day, I would more likely pick somebody who I thought was smarter and agile versus had lockstep experience that maybe seemed more reliable. Has there been an achievement that either yourself or even just under your, I guess, under your tenure that at Fragomen that you're most proud of? Well, recently I was doing a presentation and a recap of 2019 um, for the firm's executive committee. And one of the partners on the executive committee, after I was done with the presentation, said that you know he just wanted to note that the progress that had been made in HR service delivery over the last several years was, quote, extraordinary. So I think it doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> and obviously, I'm incredibly proud of the team. The firm carries a really great reputation for its diversity. Yes. Are you able to kind of talk about that? It's such an important topic. I mean, especially now and especially given everything that's going on in the world. And it is, diversity is our lifeblood at Fragman. So according to um, our employee surveys, and we've done a number over the last couple of years, diversity is our number one source of employee engagement every single time, hands down. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Um, so when we survey employees and we we ask questions that are oriented around figuring out what is engaging them about the work that they're doing, right? So what's making them more likely to stay? What is energizing them about the work that they're doing? What's enabling them to maybe give more discretionary effort to the work that they're doing for the firm? They identify the diversity of the employee population as one of the top things that engage them. And I think that, I mean, it's extraordinary, but yet on the other hand, it's not surprising, right? So, I mean, I feel it myself. The, the daily exposure to different ethnicities, religions, languages, it's just dazzling. Um, and I, I use that word intentionally. It's incredibly energizing. And we know from this data, from employee surveys, that, that they find it energizing too. And it's one of the reasons that they stay. Interesting. Now, just to play devil's advocate, is mm -hmm. there any drawback to having so much diversity? I don't think so, actually. I'm always struck by these articles and statements that proclaim, you know, oh, diversity is good for business, right? As if you have to explain why there should be diverse representation at the table, right? Of course, yeah. it's good for business because it's just good. Like the fact that it's good for business, as I said, it's great, but it's not surprising. So no, I actually... Look, at the end of the day, if you have a lot of different viewpoints, it can be difficult to reach consensus. And consensus is what drives decision-making and, and a lot of things. So, of course, if you have a lot of different viewpoints, it can be difficult to pull that all together to consensus. But beyond that, 
I don't think there's any downside to diversity at all. So I don't know if, if you'll be able to speak to this because you've got so much diversity within your organization, but I have a, a number of clients that have done a, a pretty good job in terms of uh, hiring a diverse workforce. So, mm-hmm. so they, they've kind of done a good job there. But the biggest struggle that they're running into is the inclusion part. I don't know if that's something because you guys are so diverse, maybe that that really isn't something that you're coming across or if it is, or if it's something that you do know something about, I'd love to get your perspective. Yeah. I mean, luckily, as you know, and you point out, we have fantastic um, statistics on diversity in the firm. And we were just actually recognized by the AMWA, which are the largest firms in the world. We are ranked number two for diversity um, out of all, of all the firms. Yeah, thank you. We typically fluctuate between one and two, which is a nice fluctuation and a nice place to be. (laughs) And fortunately, our executive committee, which is comprised of nine partners, there are three women on the executive committee out of the nine. And they're one of the three is a Latina. So in terms of inclusion, certainly the statistic, that statistic, which shows that women are not only represented in terms of whole numbers, but they're actually at the table where decisions are being made. I think that's what inclusion is all about, right? And so I've heard others make the analogy about, well, you're at the party, but you're not invited to dance, right? So it's not just about how many people you have in your firm that are diverse, but whether they're actually included in the material activities of the business. And so I think fortunately, in the case of Fragman, we have that. We have women, we have a majority of women partners, so at least 50% women partners, and maybe more. So they're not just there represented in numbers, but they're actually at the table when decisions are being made about how to run the firm. I remember when someone called me about the consulting role at Fragman, and I knew them from my prior job because they had moved an executive or helped us move an executive in Europe. So I knew the name and I knew what they did. But when I went to the website, the first thing I saw on the website were the kudos about diversity. And it was almost like you had me at hello. <laughs> you know, I, was, I thought, okay, this is the place I really want to explore. What has been the best skill set that you have acquired that you feel has kind of led to the success that you've been experiencing in your life? Well, I think I talked about the law degree um, before as really being what I think has enabled me to be the executive that I am. But I think one of the things I've had to learn over the years is that consensus building, right? So when you're a lawyer, you're trained to be right, right? Because that's what your clients want. Your clients are not, are not necessarily paying you to make everybody happy. (laughs) They're paying you to win. And so you really develop a focus on winning and being right. I think when you come into an executive role where you have a number of different constituencies, right, you have to learn how to build consensus. And I think in general, particularly in the polarized society in which we're living right now, we've lost sight of the importance of consensus building, right? It feels like losing. It feels like compromise. And it is to some degree. And that's how I used to feel when I was still kind of in my lawyer mindset was compromise is losing. I should win because the facts are on my side. So it's really the skill that I've had to work on the most 
as an executive and I've had to calibrate the desire to win with the desire to get buy-in. And that's often not a linear objective process, right? In HR, you have to be able to sell your ideas and your ability to influence is not just going to be based on sort of empirical data and facts, but it's going to be based in part on your relationships with people and your ability to build that consensus. So that's definitely something that I've had to work on over the years. I mean, to me, you seem kind of like a natural from a relationship standpoint. I mean, is there (laughs) to hear you say that you've got to build on that? Was there anything in particular that you had to build? And, and, you know, what, what advice might you have for somebody else that's coming up the ranks that, I mean, again, in order to be a leader, I mean, that is Mm -hmm. an important skill set. Like, you know, they have to, they have to trust you, but in order to trust you, they've got to like you. And in order to Mm -hmm. like you, they got to know you. So how do you, is there a, a, formula behind this? Or is there something in particular that you've just really focused on in order to build up this skill set? Well, I think you have to listen, right? And I think there has to be less impulsivity. So if you are, are a lawyer or a litigator like I was, you are trained to respond quickly. If you're delivering an oral argument in court and a judge asks you a question or your opposing counsel says something that you disagree with, you react quickly because it's that sort of competitive type of dialogue. So I think in contrast, when you're building consensus and when you're trying to get buy-in, you have to really actively listen and not listening necessarily with the intent to respond immediately, but to understand the perspective, right? And to understand that people may be resistant to the idea for a lot of different reasons and really trying to hone in on what those reasons are and not assuming that they're of, a, of ill intent, right? Maybe they are fearful. Well, why are they feel fearful? It's incumbent upon you to sort of try to drill down and understand that perspective where they're where they're coming from. And you you still may not agree with it. And by the way, it still may not be rational, but that's all the more reason why you have to figure out a way to respond to it. So I would definitely say listening and trying to delve below the resistance. That's so great on so many levels. And uh, it's really interesting. So I do a lot of training with uh, individuals on how to build these kinds of relationships. And and I make a huge focus on the listening part. And, and listening with the intent to hear them as opposed to just respond. And there's another point I want to make, and I just think it's, again, so apropos. I'm on a, a text chain with a bunch of friends, and there's like uh, 13, 14 of us, and and uh, uh, I think five or six of those that are on the chain are lawyers. Four of them are litigators. And, okay. <laughs> and I know you can know where I'm going with this, but it's so interesting. It's so funny that, again, the responses from them are quick, and not only yes. that, you know, their responses, they're just reinforcing their own point and they're almost like yelling at everybody else and not mm-hmm. listening. So I'm really that much more impressed hearing and knowing, I should say, firsthand, literally like minutes prior to even getting on this, how yes. you were able to kind of pull the switch and to be able to kind of put change and, and put on a different hat to be able to uh, sit in the position that you're in. You have to. And it's not easy because just, I don't know your lawyer friends. I can imagine the text, the text, because we love that repartee, right? We love, we love that banter. And most lawyers I know are lovers of words and language and 
rhetoric. And so that is kind of our natural setting. So it, it takes work to, as I said, to calibrate that, but it's essential for success. If you could go back in time and, and give yourself any professional advice, would it have anything to do with what we just talked about? Or maybe might it be something else? Um, a little bit different. So it would be not to internalize kind of ill-intentioned criticism, right? So not, not all criticism is constructive. In fact, a lot of it isn't. And I think women particularly tend to let their self-esteem rise and fall on every bit of criticism they receive. And it undermines their confidence. And I know it did for me. And I had a boss years ago when I was still practicing law who used to tell me that I was subpar and you know, I was never going to get to the next level of my career. And he was a real prince. It took me years to have the epiphany that he would have never entrusted his clients to me if he thought I was incompetent. And so it was a real aha moment for me. And it was literally like only about five years ago that I had this epiphany. And that's what I would tell myself. And in fact, I gave a commencement address at my high school several years ago. And I, I did incorporate that advice into the speech that I gave to the graduating high school students. And I, I went to an all-female high school. So I thought it was a particularly relevant message for them. How, how good did it feel to be able to come back full circle there? <laughs> Great. But it actually just made me feel better. You know, you carry the burden of that criticism when you're trying to achieve and when you're trying to do more, you have that voice in the back of your head that says, well, but so-and-so didn't think I was ever going to be able to do this. Or so-and-so told me that I was subpar. And it was really reassuring to be able to let go of that. That must have been uh, <laughs> cathartic, I guess. This is the word that I'm looking for. It was. and But it also tells you that you learn a lot even from your worst bosses. You do. How about from your, and we're running a little tight on time. How, I got one last question for you. What was the best advice that somebody ever gave you? I was 13 and I was a freshman in high school and the principal of my high school, which as I, I think I just mentioned was an all girls preparatory school, spoke to us, the incoming class of freshmen. And she said, everything you do from this moment forward should be with the purpose of getting into the best college you can get into and so it obviously stuck with me because I was 13 um, at the time and I still remember it. But the message was really about the importance of preparation, dedication to excellence, and intentionality and focus about what you want to achieve. And I think it's translatable advice today. And I try to give it in varying forms to people who ask me for advice, right? There is no substitute for preparation. And I think intentionality and focus about what you want to achieve for yourself and the organization that you're serving are incredibly important. They're North Star. They are the North Star. Big fan of preparation. Are, are you um, familiar with the military adage on preparation? I don't think so, but it's say little, it. Maybe. It's a little rough around the, a little gruff, <laughs> but, I, but I think it's good. It's like uh, poor preparation leads to piss poor performance. Um, <laughs> okay. And, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'll take it up a notch, not on the gruff side, but failing to prepare is preparing for failure. So it's interesting, right? So I don't think that Sister Maurice, who was the, the principal of my high school, would have said it quite that way. But I think that was the point. If you want a good result, it's within your power to make that result happen. 
to your point, there's another quote, and I don't recall who, who said it, but it's, uh, you know, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. Yes. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Well, awesome. I, I got to tell you, Leslie, thoroughly enjoy speaking with you. Glad that we had an opportunity to share our conversation with those that are listening. You've done some amazing work. Obviously, Fragman's an, an awesome uh, organization and must feel really cool to know that when you're sitting in the position that you're in, that uh, a really big reason for the way this organization is, is it's coming from you. Well, it's coming from my team and it's a privilege. It's a privilege to work with the team that I do and the employees of the firm are some of the best people I know. And I've been really happy to share my story with you. Thank you so much. Make it a great day. Thanks. Many thanks for listening to Who's Who in HR. If you're looking to connect with more top-level HR professionals, be sure to log on to NetworkWise.com to find out how you could be part of an HR mastermind group. Also, subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on everything happening with NetworkWise. In the interim, make it a great day and remember to always NetworkWise.